Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 27th, 2011. Ah, we are on the eve of a three-day weekend here in the United States. We celebrate what we call Memorial Day, remembering those soldiers who fought in wars to secure and defend freedom and liberty and individual rights things that are under attack nowadays but that's not the topic of this program thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro and i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god <clears throat> think of it this way There is such thing as transcendent truth. The truths revealed in the Bible are binding upon all of us. When we talk about biblical truth, these are truths that are true for everybody, regardless of when they were born, regardless of where they were born, regardless of whether or not they were born in freedom, they were born in slavery, they were born um, in power, or just, you know, born somewhere in the middle of the road or experiencing poverty or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, slave, free, Hebrew, Greek, Chinese. It doesn't matter. The truths of the Scripture are uniformly transcendent and binding upon all men. It tells us what reality is. It tells us what is true for all times. And the Christian faith is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Christian faith is not something that is, uh, well, how do I put it this way? It's not enculturated in the sense that, you know, its truths can be moved around based upon culture and and, uh, time and circumstances and things like that. No, its truths are true for all time and all places. And when somebody is teaching something as a revelation from God, or saying, this is what God expects of you, or here's what God demands, or here's what the Bible teaches. If what they're saying doesn't accord with sound biblical doctrine and the clear teachings of the Bible contradict it, then that person is not to be listened to. They're to be marked out and uh, rebuked and warned against. And so, yeah, you know, the Harold Camping thing is a great example of all this. And I spent a lot of time on it this weekend or this week um, because of the fact that there's a lot of people who right now are disillusioned, have lost everything, and a lot of people who who still persist 
in uh, in hanging on to Harold Camping's uh, false teaching, false prophecies, false doctrine, and other things. And uh, he's not the only one teaching falsely in the visible church. And the reason I say visible church is, is this, is that I can't see into the hearts of men. I cannot tell you whether or not somebody truly has faith or not by looking inside of their heart. I just, I don't have uh, an ultrasound device that I can stick against somebody's chest and and go, oh, 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 yep, there's faith, there it is. Instead, we have to look at people's confession. What is what is it that they say? Is it in accordance with the truth or is it contrary to the truth? Is it in accord with what the church has historically believed, taught, and confessed from the beginning? And yes, this can be known. Uh, or is it something new, something novel, something never before seen? Uh, something that is unique to the person teaching it. It, in in a sense, uh, it's the difference between sectarianism and Catholicism. And I, when I I use that word, I want you all to know I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is a sectarian sect, a works righteousness religion that has an entire mythology and uh, false doctrine and false gospel that has. Uh, has basically been perverted. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's no longer Christianity as as we understand Christianity biblically and even historically from the early texts uh, from the early church fathers. Instead, it's something different. So when I ta- when I say the word Catholicism, I'm referring to a universal confession of faith. You can think of it as orthodoxy the the christian church is catholic it's universal and that means is that we believe teach and confess what the church what christians through all ages believe teaches and confesses we don't have anything to fear from uh examining the uh the early church uh the the writings of the ancient church fathers and their defense of the christian faith when you when you examine what they believe and what the church confesses today, you are going to see, for the most part, it depends on if you're, if you're a Baptist or not, <laughs> but uh, no, but for the most part, you're going to see that the Christian confession of faith has stayed the same and has been fixed from beginning to end, regardless of whether or not somebody was raised in the Roman Empire, was raised in uh, uh, you know, in the Turkish Empire, the Middle Ages, uh, uh, on into uh, the Renaissance. It doesn't matter. Christianity has, as it at its core, a foundational confession of faith it is best summarized in my opinion in the in the uh, in the three ecumenical creeds the apostles creed the nicene creed and the athanasian creed uh and it, in the ancient church it was called the rule of faith but the thing is is that when you look at these things you find that christianity is not some wandering star that changes from culture to culture but its con- historic confession has remained the same from the beginning and so when somebody comes along and teaches something new something different something uh unique uh in order to do that they have to attack the church like harold camping does they have to attack what the church has believed taught and confessed from the beginning in order to move that out of the way and make room for their sectarian doctrines christianity is is well let's put it this way christian doctrine is not something that uh, should be embracing creativity instead it should be embracing fidelity 
uniqueness is not something that is celebrated when it comes to Christian doctrine. It's something that uh, should be, uh, well, protected against, if you know what I mean. And so that's what we do here on this uh, program is is that we we hold to the historic, orthodox, Catholic, Christian faith and uh, and how the Church has understood the Scriptures from the beginning— and those who deviate from it, we mark them out, and we mark them out by having you hear what we're hearing and commenting on what those people are saying. It doesn't matter if it's Rick Warren, uh, John Piper, Albert Muller, whatever. Albert Muller's not in the bad camp, but the point is is that we review everything, good, bad, ugly, uh, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Reformed, Baptist. Uh, we haven't done much in the Greek Orthodoxy, but it doesn't matter. We, re- we, you know, we, we look across the theological spectrums, and we look at a lot of the current trends that are going on, the people who are hot at the moment, the avant-garde, and basically ask the question, is what this person is teaching in accord with sound biblical doctrine? Is this what the church has taught from the beginning, or is this something unique, or is this worse, is this something that is contradicted by the clear teachings of Scripture? And so this is a program that's politically incorrect. This is a program that steps on people's toes. It upsets people. And I know some of you listening to the podcast, you you are listening and you're angry at the things that I'm saying, and yet at the same time you're compelled to keep listening. Stay with it. And uh, this is one of those programs that takes a few weeks to get used to because um, like the prophet Elijah, I don't have a problem using um, biting sarcasm and humor as a means of throwing rocks at the wolves, if you know what I mean. Anyway, all right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Believe it or not, I have a Patricia King update, and uh, I, I'm surprised. I'm actually surprised. I was hoping that uh, uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, had chimed in uh, regarding Harold Camping's now uh, confirmed false prophecy, but we... William Tapley this week has um, has uh, decided to go with part two on whether or not Comet uh, Elenin is uh, some kind of harbinger of the end of the world, and I am just not interested in listening to uh, William Tapley wax eloquent regarding Comet Elenin. I feel sorry for William Tapley in so many ways. He's he's one of these guys I think is self deceived. But uh, what we're going to be listening in uh, uh, Patricia King has. Um, a new video entitled You Can Shape Your World. Ah, that's right. You Can Shape Your World. Sounds like that old Captain EO song from... Yeah, anyway, I'm dating myself. Those of you who don't know who Captain EO is, <clears throat> you might want to look it up. Anyway, and then I've got two articles uh, t- from the uh, from the Christian Post um, regarding Harold Camping that I think are worth passing along. And then I'm going to... Uh, well... I'm going to spend a little bit of time doing some teaching uh, uh, on Christian tithing. Is a Christian bound by God's law to tithe the same way we're bound by the law to love God, uh, to not commit adultery, to not lie, to not steal, to not covet? Is a Christian obligated to tithe in that sense? And I'm going to read part of an article uh, written by Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason on this uh, matter. And that's all going to be foundational to the work that we're going to be doing in our sermon review today. Um, oh, man. 
those of you who've been listening for uh, you, you remember a, was it last week or the week before i i'm losing sight now uh, you know I, getting old i can hide my own easter eggs but um over at new spring church um uh, robert morris uh, preached a sermon on tithing and when i did the sermon review um i i well pretty much blew a gasket it was one of those ones that just uh, sent me uh, over the edge. It was uh, the the name of the sermon was the principle of multiplication. Well, Robert Morris preached again at New Spring Church, who basically telling me that uh, uh, the uh, the the rumors that have been uh, coming to me via email, people who claim to be in the know that uh, financially things are not so hot there at New Spring and Anderson. Um, I'm beginning to think that uh, since they've had Robert Morris preach two weeks in a row on this topic, that uh, that things have got to be pretty thin there financially at uh, New Spring, and uh, and so uh, Perry Noble seems to have brought in you know the big guns. And the problem is, is that Robert Morris uh, does not know how to handle God's word. Doesn't know how to handle God's word at all, and he is engaging in the heresy two step or um, what we call doctrinal sleight of hand. And so we're going to be listening to his sermon. Uh, preached this past Sunday entitled The Principle of First, The Principle of First, where he tries to make a biblical claim that um, all the money that you earn is under a curse until you redeem it with your tithe. I I am not kidding. That's exactly what Robert Morris uh, is going to attempt to teach us from the scriptures. And as you will find out, he falls woefully short of actually doing that. In fact, um, what what he does is uh, is I I personally think it's criminal. I mean that's how bad the deception is. I mean this is somebody who I'm be- I'm beginning to think graduated from the King and the Duke uh, Seminary. Um, if you're not familiar with the King and the Duke, uh, read Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn anyway, and you'll you'll get what I'm talking about. So. With that, let's dive into the program proper. Um, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you're in a cooler uh, part of the world, perfectly okay. Um, they do enhance your listener experience. Adult beverages don't have a problem with that as long as you keep in mind that the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You don't want to become enslaved to a gift that God has given us. And uh, duct tape tweezers, uh, bendy straws, and tinfoil pyramid hats, those are always standard accessories when listening to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, so let's dive into the program. and. That can mean only one thing. <laughs> it's time for a Patricia King update. Yeah, I'd need to um, make this warning, and that is, is that whenever we do a Patricia King update, it's important that you all realize that illegal narcotics are never encouraged while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Although uh, sometimes I wonder um, regarding her. Uh, Here's um, uh, the latest from Patricia King entitled, You Can Shape Your World. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that, you know, the world, it was without form, it was void, there was darkness in it. In fact, it, it, it gives the connotation that it was in a place of chaos. And there might be someone who's watching this right now that you feel that your whole life is in a time of chaos or maybe there's dark swirls in it or things aren't coming together. But it says, in the beginning, God. And that word God, God's name there is Elohim. Elohim. Obviously, she's never taken Hebrew. And and 
all throughout Gen Genesis 1 where it talks about the creation, it refers to God as Elohim. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the divine one. It says, in the beginning, God created. And I'm sorry, but uh, Patricia, um, you obviously don't know Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew word for God in the singular is El. Okay, L. And I mean, it's you. You can say it's just the generic word for God. And what's unique about the Hebrew word Elohim is that it is the it, it is the word used for God in the Hebrew that gives us a hint that of the doctrine of the Trinity. And one of the unique things about the word Elohim, Elohim, is uh, is that it is the plural form of the Hebrew word for God, El, which is El is singular. And so um, the idea here is is that the unique thing about this word is that uh, even though it's a plural, it always in the Hebrew takes with its singular pronouns and singular uh, verbs. It's it's a strange, strange phenomenon that you see there in the Hebrew text with the with the Hebrew word Elohim. And so it hints at the fact that within the Godhead there is more than one person. <sighs> when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get that creative ability on the inside of you too. What? Oh, man. Hang on, I gotta. Sometimes she just comes out of left field. Hang on a second, I'm gonna back up the audio on this just for a smidge so that we can get her so-called biblical argument in context. Unbelievable. God's name there is Elohim, and and all throughout Gen Genesis one where it talks about the creation, it refers to God as Elohim. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the divine one. It says, in the beginning, God created, and. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get that creative ability on the inside of you, too. Really? Um, <clears throat> I don't mean to sound like um, I'm skeptical, but um, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I, I don't recall a single verse that says that uh, when I become a Christian, I get to have the same creative ability as, uh, as God does inside of me. Um, just because you quoted Genesis 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, does not mean then that all of a sudden that when I become a Christian, I get God's creative ability percolating and burbling up with inside of me. There is no text that says anything of the sort. Yeah, I mean, this is what we would consider to be an unfounded doctrinal assertion. Yeah, the, this assertion cannot be substantiated from the clear teachings of the biblical text. And that's what it requires. In order for the biblical text, in order for a doctrine to be established, it needs clear biblical text in unambiguous language that teaches the doctrine. Um, and so, uh, the idea, for, I'll give you an example, okay? Um the, the, there are there are some people who question the deity of Christ. Okay, the deity of Christ is a doctrine. It is you know it's it you, you can throw it in as a major biblical doctrine, and nobody can make the claim that Jesus is God unless there were clear biblical texts that say that. And there are even Jesus himself clearly says that he is God. 
And so, um, you know, but if we didn't have those texts, if if the texts were really without the clear teachings of the of of you know from Jesus as well as the apostles regarding the deity of Christ, we couldn't make such a claim. So, if no text existed, and somebody says, "Well, Jesus is God in human flesh," if we didn't have clear text to back that up. That's nothing but an unfounded assertion. This is what uh, Patricia King is doing here. She's making an assertion, uh, you know, and there's no biblical backing up of the assertion. I can assert anything. I can I could say that the you know that that God's favorite sandwich is a, a grilled ham and cheese on rye, um, but unless I have a clear teaching, a clear revelation, um, that's nothing but an unfounded assertion. And that's what she's done here. She's just asserted this, but hasn't backed it up. Let's see if she backs it up. The same ability that God created the world with is inside of you, in inside of Christ in you. And so... Inside of Christ within me. This is getting weirder by the second. He took a world that was in chaos. It was just, there was nothing formed. And he created, and that word created, it means to create and to give form and to shape. You have the power in Jesus to create, form, and shape your world. Wow. Um, What are you talking about? And so even if you find that there's darkness all over you right now and all over the world that you live in, there's darkness all over me. Quick, get, get a sponge. I got to get the darkness off of me. You can start speaking as God did, divine order into that darkness. Divine order. Um. Wow. Sounds like we're little deities. Let there be light. God said, let there be light. And he spoke it into the darkness. And when he did, there was light. You can change your world because you have creative power on the inside of you. Oh, boy. It sounds like it's a complete distraction away from what the Bible really teaches. Elohim means to rule. God is the ruler. And when he lives inside of you, he can rule through you. When he created man, also found in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says he created you in his image and in his likeness. In other words, in the image and the likeness of God the ruler. And yes. Of God the creator. That means you have the power to rule, to take dominion. Oh, man, this woman obviously, not only is she not taken Hebrew, uh, systematic theology, hermeneutics, um, obviously she hasn't taken logic either. I mean, seriously. And to create, create a world full of light and love and goodness around you. You can do it. You just take a look at the darkness the chaos the the disappointments and start speaking the word of life i like using my scriptures to just speak into it yeah like it's some kind of magic spell or uh, talisman mm yeah okay speak into the darkness and see your life change your world change sounds like a form of witchcraft you know what i'm saying to create realms of god's goodness around you in the beginning god created when there was a world of chaos, darkness, and confusion, he created light. He created order. You know what's funny, Patricia, is that when I look at your theology, all I see is darkness and confusion. I wonder if it would work if I just started speaking scripture against you and speaking light in such a way that uh, you know that would dispel and get rid of your darkness and, and biblical confusion. I wonder if that would work. Look at your world right now. Okay. 
in every area of darkness, chaos, and confusion and say, let there be light. All right. So, uh, Patricia, because of the darkness and d- demonic confusion in your theology and teaching, uh, let there be light. I, I feel better. I just don't think that that's really what I'm supposed to do. Let there be light in Jesus' name. Oh, in Jesus' name. I forgot the magic in Jesus' name formula at the end of my witchcraft. Anyhow, man, unbelievable. She never ceases to amaze me on the uh, the completely dismal false doctrine front. Okay, we are up on our first break If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com is my email address. I'm all over the map. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. Ba, 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 ba. Na, 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 
right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is not preaching Christ and Him crucified for your sins. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. If you're not already a member of our crew, we're in the process of uh, trying to convince 350 of you and there's a lot more of you than that, uh, to join our crew. It's only $6.95 every month. And uh, by joining our crew, uh, getting to that number, it ensures that we're going to be able to meet our budget every month. Meeting our budget is kind of super important. And the reason why is because if we don't meet our budget, well, we don't have huge cash reserves. I don't have the millions of dollars that Harold Camping does. We run a pretty tight ship here. And uh, and so uh, it's important that we meet our budget. So if you haven't already joined our crew, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, I uh, click on the Join Our Crew button, fill it all out. When you join, uh, I will send you a link to our latest book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. That would include you and me. We're both sinners. Uh, well, actually, there's more than two of us listening. i got to think about my antecedents. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so... I'll send you the link, and uh, it, it, we're rapidly getting close to June, and sometime early in June I'm going to be sending out, uh, for all of you crew members, uh, a link for you to download the uh, the uh, a commentary on the book of Matthew, uh, written by uh, Kretzman, from Kretzman's popular commentary, and that one's going to only be for crew members only, so I just want to let you all know that, but... Anyway, um, so, if, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along here. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Camping's Dismissal of Churches Disputed by Christians. Now, if you listen to yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, then you know that Harold Camping basically says the devil is running all of the churches, every single one of them, and uh, all the denominations, except for, you know, and so the only way that salvation was possible um, prior to May 21st was that uh, you were hearing the message through uh, family radio and the Campingites. But if you were, if you're part of a church, well, you know, you, you are just the spawn of the devil. Now, here's the deal. Okay, let's kind of tease this out for a second before I even get to the headline. There are some churches where the pastor isn't preaching the gospel. He might believe it, but you wouldn't know it based upon what he preaches. In those situations, the devil is the one who is influencing and deceiving that pastor and having him consume all of his time and energy on things other than what he really should be doing. In, in a situation like that, you could say that, that particular denomination, insofar as they don't preach the, do, uh, the gospel and don't preach sound doctrine, has come under the influence of the devil, and they need to repent and 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 be forgiven for what they're doing and change course and get back to the job of preaching the word and preaching sound doctrine. Now, here's the deal. In the in the weird you know state of irony that we live in today, um there are you know I'll give you an example. I I'm a I'm a confessional Lutheran and I have no problem basically saying uh, for the most part 
the uh, the congregations that are part of the ELCA have fallen to apostasy. That's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I'm Missouri Synod, but that just because I'm a Missouri Synod doesn't mean I basically say if you want to hear the gospel, just go to a Missouri Synod church. You know, there's um there's uh, Missouri Synod churches that are engaging in all kinds of tomfoolery and foolishness and are not doing what they're supposed to do, just like there are Southern Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Reformed Church in America, the church uh, uh, you know, churches uh there's seeker-driven churches that are doing the same kind of stuff. It's so as a result of it, you know, uh, you always have to be discerning, and that means you, when you go and you check out a congregation, you got to listen for the gospel. you got to listen for whether or not they're preaching Christ and rightly handling God's word, or are they attacking, impugning it, uh, deconstructing it, undermining it, or just ignoring it. I mean, th- there's more than one way to attack God's word. There's the direct route, which is what the liberals generally take, and then there's the uh, kind of passive-aggressive indirect route, and that is, well, we're not going to publicly attack the Bible. We're just not going to preach it. Yeah, it's because you know it, it would it would freak people out if we attacked it in public. So rather than attacking in public, we're just gonna put it away and you know pull it out every now and then you know just here and there, but not really teach what it says. So yeah, anyway, um, so listen, so the, are there uh, are there good confessional congregations in the ELCA? Yeah, there are. Um, are there a lot of them? No. Are there good confessional churches in the LCMS? Yes. Are there a lot of them? For the most part. Are there some bad ones? Yes. Are there good congregations in the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes. Are there uh, are, are there uh, bad ones? Yeah, there's bad ones too. Um, you, you get what I'm saying? So camp, camping is kind of right and wrong. Um, it, many times, the uh, keep in mind, the devil, when he tempted Jesus, he quoted scripture. And so uh, it, it, he quoted the right source, but applied it incorrectly. So Harold Camping, well, he's a complete wingnut. Anyway, <clears throat> from uh, this is from the Christian Post. Camping's dismissal of churches disputed by Christians by Kate Yankoulis. I have never, have I read a Kate Yankoulis story? Uh, she might be new. Anyway, she says, even as Harold Camping announced that the final spiritual judgment of the world began on May 21st, he reaffirmed his belief that God passed judgment on organized churches more than two decades ago. Camping, who's 89 and probably losing his mind, first announced the end of the church age in 2002, claiming that God was no longer working through churches because of their apostasy. According to Camping, the conclusion of the church age came on May 21st, 1988. Quote, this is what you heard this yesterday. Evidence was uh, seen ever since, Camping said Monday in his first public address after the unrealized doomsday. If we take a snapshot of the churches 50 years ago and of our day, it's entirely different. They have far less respect for the uh, far less respect for the world, far different views on marriage and music. Uh, (laughs) Well, yes, if you look at the churches today, there is there is a growing number of uh, church bodies and congregations that are really cozy with the world. And and openly attack God's word, or do it uh, by putting it away. Um, does that mean that the it's the end of the church age? No, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know, well, no point in quoting clear passages of scripture because I mean Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour either. But that didn't stop camping anyway. Um. 
Camping then, a 23-year tribulation period began in 1988, according to Camping, leading up to his predicted Judgment Day. His first failed prediction of the rapture on September 7, 1994, was in fact the end of a six-year period in which the Holy Spirit departed from all churches and started to bring salvation outside of the churches. Quote, the Lord did return to earth that day, Camping said. In September of 1994, God began to evangelize the world. In Camping's 2002 book, The End of the Church Age and After, he said that salvation no longer could be found within churches. He called on people to leave their churches, which he claimed were now controlled by Satan. Quote, God has commanded each and every believer to leave his local church and to continue to serve God as his ambassador outside of the churches and congregations, Camping wrote. Uh, well, Dr. Thomas B. Slater, professor of New Testament at Mercer University, has dismissed Camping's claims. Quote, this is a man who has missed the date of the end of the world at least twice, so his understanding of how God sees the church's role is highly questionable from just that standpoint alone. He told the Christian Post, Second, I would rather doubt that any person is in position to state how God wants to use any institution, whether it's the church or the government or whatever. While Slater acknowledged that some of Camping's indictments of the modern church have credence, people cannot expect churches to be without flaws. Quote, I constantly tell people that they should not look for a perfect institution created by imperfect human beings, Slater said, for people who love their religious traditions, they should call them out whenever they do wrong. Exactly. When faced with problems within their churches, Slater said, people must look inside themselves to determine what they should do. How much do you love your denomination, your religious tradition, and how much are you willing to give of yourself to try to make it better? Slater asked. Each person has to answer that question for himself or for herself. One of Camping's biggest issues with the churches is their interpretation of the Bible. Camping asserts that the Bible is the ultimate authority, but churches have turned against Scripture and subverted its teachings. Since churches do not recognize the signs pointing to the impending end of time, he wrote, quote, Action on the part of the reader is required, the action being to abandon one's church and complete the task of world evangelism. Family Radio, of which Camping is president, still has posted on its website a solemn warning to those in the churches saying that those who deny the impending end of the world will be destroyed. Let me read that again. Family Radio, of which Camping is the president, he, he says Jesus is the CEO, still has posted on its website a solemn warning to those in the churches saying that those who deny the impending end of the world will be destroyed. This is a, this is the false gospel that I've been pointing to now for weeks uh, within the uh, Family Radio Herald camping uh, camp, and that is is that uh, in order to be saved, you have to believe that the end of the world. Uh, well, that you had to believe that Judgment Day was on May twenty first, and apparently now you have to believe that the end of the world, the physical end of the world, is on October twenty first. If you don't believe that, you can't be saved. That's a false gospel, by the way. Okay, After Camping initially announced the end of the church age, in the Reformed Church in the United States convened a committee to respond to Camping's view of churches to address his errors and to warn those who follow him. In a report, the Reformed Church refuted Camping, noted that while he claimed that churches are the ones flouting the Bible, he gave himself extra-biblical authority. As the chosen interpreter of Scripture, he has appointed himself as the ultimate spiritual authority on earth, making him guilty of the same evil that he places on organized religion. Exactly. 
On May 21st, camping's appointed judgment day came and went. Uh, So camping has revised again, saying that while the day did not bring the expected physical coming, it began a spiritual judgment of the earth leading up to the world's physical end on October 21st. People have been reaching out to camping's followers in the aftermath, hoping to bring them back to church. Redeemer Broadcasting, a uh, Christian radio network in New York formerly affiliated with Family Radio, wrote in an open letter posted on the station's website, all true believers of Harold Camping were instructed to leave their churches, and perhaps you were one of them who obeyed this satanic teaching from Mr. Camping. Now is the time to repent and to turn to Christ and return to church. In a related story, also on the Christian Post, uh, the headline reads, Camping Wrong to Delete Hell from Judgment, Says Theologian. This is by Stephanie uh, Samuel uh, from the uh, Christian Post. Now, I, pers- personally, I, I was very tempted to, uh, to uh, cover this story. Uh, the, uh, well, the story about Justin Bieber's Jesus tattoo, um, but I, I decided not to. <laughs> Yeah, there were, when I was uh, on the Christian Post website this morning, the headline that caught my eye was this one: "Justin Bieber's Jesus tattoo is a powerful symbol," says church minister. <laughs> oh man! Anyway, um, yeah, I decided that I will not be covering Justin Bieber's Jesus tattoo uh, for uh, reasons that my brain could possibly explode if I tried to read the story. So. Instead, I'm going to also cover the hell aspect of uh, camping's thing because we talked about this yesterday. Um, Stephanie Samuel writes, counterfeit false prophet, sorry, not counterfeit, but countering false prophet Harold Camping. One Baptist professor says, hell is a crucial part of God's final judgment on earth. Camping, according to Craig uh, Blazing, executive vice president and provost of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is wrong in deleting hell from the picture of the last days. The final judgment culminates in the judgment of hell for the unsaved, Blazing said. For those who question the existence of hell, Blazing says there are extensive teachings in the Bible declaring it is a physical and spiritual end for non-believers. The scriptures, he told the Christian Post, also established hell as a key part of God's final judgment after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. He refuted Camping's notion that death ends life as we know it for unbelieving human beings, just like Christians, the souls of non-Christians will live on eternally, but in different places. The Christian soul lives eternally in heaven, while the non-believing soul will live eternally in hell, he maintained. Now, I would say um, heaven is kind of the, uh, yeah, that's not the uh, the normal abode of human beings. And uh, there's a cre- new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and we do get resurrected. I think that needs to be... Uh, brought to bear here. Anyway, um, without hell, said the theologian, there is no heaven. The final judgment, which is the judgment of hell, makes possible the final state of everlasting of the everlasting kingdom of God, he underscored. By the way, these comments here from this uh, uh, Baptist theologian also apply in any discussion regarding Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Anyway, Camping rejected the existence of hell in a Monday broadcast, explaining his May 21st Judgment Day prediction that failed to materialize. Before the broadcast, Camping falsely proclaimed that the rapture would take place on May 21st. Before his uh, theory was disproven, several of his followers began quitting their jobs and spending their money in anticipation that they would soon be taken to heaven. Even non-believers were shaken by the prediction. A mother tried to kill herself and her two children. A 14-year-old Russian girl was also reportedly so frightened by the prediction that she committed suicide. 
Rather than apologizing for his failed doomsday prediction Monday, Camping insisted that on Saturday judgment did judgment day did come, but spiritually rather than physically, and he adjusted his prediction to say that the rapture and the apocalypse will uh, all happen on the same day, October 21st, 2011. He also revealed a little more about his beliefs with viewers. He proclaimed that there is no hell because God is a loving and compassionate and merciful God. Camping quoted Romans 6.23 to state that once you're dead, you're dead. Subsequently, he believes whoever is left behind on October 21st will be destroyed by the end of the world. There will be shaming of those that are left behind or those who die, but they will not have any conscious existence, he stated. Blasing explained that hell exists because God is good. If God if God is good, there has to be a hell because his judgment requires that evil be punished, he described. God's natural disposition to abide in goodness and punish evil is also the reason that there will be a time of final judgment upon the world, he said. The Southern Baptist went on to note that the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period of hardship such as famine, war, natural disasters, following the rapture of the church into heaven is an earthly manifestation of God's judgment. Still, that judgment does not reach its finality till there is judgment in hell. Okay, so we've got a premillennialist here. Essentially, one cannot affirm one without the other. Camping's insistence that there is a day of judgment, but no hell is confirmation that he is a false prophet. Blasing contended. Camping is denying the truth of the Bible, he concluded. Following the pattern of false prophets such as Edgar Wisenot, who predicted the rapture would occur in 1988. Camping hasn't made just one wrong prediction, but several, and according to Blasing, the Bible teaches that a true prophet cannot be wrong. Actually, that's correct. Um, the biblical standards for a prophet basically are if a prophet says something's going to come about, if it doesn't come about, he's a false prophet, or if he predicts something's going to take place and it does take place, but he has you te- uh, following uh, false doctrine, well, then you're not to listen to him either. So you, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, those those are the standards. So, folks, again, I cannot reiterate enough. If you have friends, family, uh, any coworkers, anybody that you know who's listening to family radio or you know caught up in this whole camping thing, now is the time to reach out to them and help them out of this group. This is not a Christian group. This is a cult following the, the the quackiness of a cult leader, which is what Harold Camping is. Uh, he is in the same same league, uh, same group of uh, false teachers as Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Smith, uh, Muhammad, and other false teachers. This he is a, he is a cult leader in the in the brand of Jim Jones. And even though uh, his followers haven't had Kool Aid to drink and didn't commit mass suicide, um, his his uh, doctrine is as dangerous because. The result, the the eternal result is the same, hell, because he teaches a false gospel. He actually his his doctrines flirt with Arianism when it comes to Jesus Christ, uh, you know, uh, denying his deity in full. He denies the doctrine of hell. Teaches a false gospel that if you don't believe the judgment day is on a particular date, that you're not saved. Uh, you you got to reach out to these folks with the truth. Okay. One more quick uh, turnaround, and uh, and then we'll take take a break, and then we will uh, get into our sermon review. But I wanted to take a look at this question outside of the sermon review, and I'm going to uh, basically solicit the help of Greg Kolkel of uh, Stand to Reason. He's uh, written on this topic, and I'm going to read an article that he's written. And the que- the que- the the name of the article is "Should Christians Tithe." 
Should Christians tithe? Now, the question is that's on the table, okay? When we, when we look at God's law, when we look at the Old Testament, we have to make sense of it, okay? When you read the Old Testament Levitical laws, or the, the laws you find in Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how are you to make sense of them? Because um, there are some laws that obviously Christians still talk about today. For instance, the Ten Commandments. We say, thou shalt not murder or kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. You you get what I'm saying. So Christians still look to the Ten Commandments um, as as a guide for what a good work is, okay? And uh, so the question is, how do we make sense of the Mosaic Law? Because in the Mosaic Law, there's also laws and commandments that have to do with diet, what you eat, clothing, what kind of clothes you can wear. There's, uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of laws in the Mosaic Law that pertain to skin diseases, rashes, and uh, leprosy, and uh, bodily discharges, uh, uh, whether, you know, you know, people who are declared to be unclean because they've been in the presence of a dead body. Uh, so there's all kinds of different rules in, in the scriptures, and there are laws in the Old Testament that pertain to tithing, okay? How are we to understand them as Christians, okay? Do do the laws in the Old Testament pertaining to tithing in the nation-state of Israel under the theocracy of God, um, does does that carry over and is that binding to Christians? And let me just put it this way, okay? You've got to be really careful when you're looking at the Mosaic Law. The purpose of the law, according to the Scriptures, is to convict you of your sin. This is what Romans says. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is Romans chapter 3. So when we, one of the th- recurring themes that we look at here at Fighting for the Faith is a proper distinction of God's law and the gospel. The law cannot save you unless you keep it perfectly. If you have already sinned in your life, you cannot be saved by keeping the law because you are under judgment. In fact, the the uh, the law makes it clear that the person who will live by the law, by the law has to keep doing everything that's written in the law. Okay, but when we look at the Old Testament law, there's there's you have to understand that there's different types. There is civil laws that pertain to the civil code of those who were living in Israel. At, at that time, you know, when we, when we talk about civil law, think about our civil uh, justice code, okay, uh, yeah, or in the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the justice code in, in your neck of the woods uh, regarding stealing, um, regarding misdemeanors, regarding felonies, uh, things of that nature. So there's law, you know, in here in the United States, we have state laws and we have federal laws that pertain to the conduct of every citizen. The Mosaic Law has those types of laws in it as well. And so there's civil law in the Old Testament. There is ceremonial law that pertains to, you know, specifically to laws that have to do with uh, the sacrificing of animals for particular things that God has commanded Israel. There's feast days and all kinds of rules pertaining to that. 
as well as moral law. So when we look at the Old Testament, we got civil, ceremonial, and moral. And what you find in the New Testament is, is that the moral laws, not the civil or the ceremonial, get brought forward into the New Testament as a basically as a rule and a guide for Christian conduct and good works. Because if you understand the problem that humanity faces rightly, that each and every one of us, you, me, and everyone included, were all born dead in trespasses and sin, at, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross um, pays the penalty for our sin, and that by faith, by, through the preaching of the gospel, we're brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins, that we're set free from slavery to sin death and the devil, and we are now set free, new creations in Christ, regenerate believers who cannot help but do good works because we have a new nature in us as a result of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So Christians do good works. What is a good work? We look to the moral law as to what a good work is. Okay, and that would be the Ten Commandments. So when you when you look at the Ten Commandments, they're written as a negative. You could take them and flip them as a positive, and then it and then that kind of gives you a guide, uh, a rule for what a good work is for a Christian to be doing. So with all of that in mind, the question then is: is Should Christians tithe? This is an Old Testament practice for those people who were in Israel. Okay, and so uh, let me read uh, uh, Greg Kolkel's article uh, on this uh, from his Stand to Reason uh, website. Here's what Greg Kokel writes. He says, there's an obvious disjunction in the scripture between the Old Covenant period and the New Covenant. And when we talk about Old Testament and New Testament, that's what we're talking about, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Um, I'm not referring to the division between Malachi and Matthew. That's merely a textual division. Jesus' entire life was lived under the Old Covenant system, even though the events of his life are recorded in the New Testament. Jesus initiated the New Covenant at the end of his life at the Last Supper, but it wasn't until Pentecost that it began in force. The theological disjunction, then, is pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost, not Old and New Testament, although New, Old and New Testament are synonyms with this, this idea. So this is kind of setting up what uh, Greg Kokel is thinking here. This doesn't justify throwing out the entire Old Testament. Rather, it informs our hermeneutics so that when we look at the Scripture, we have to ask if our interpretation needs to take this disjunction into consideration. Are there some teachings, precepts, or promises that are strictly Old Covenant, meant for pre-Pentecost Israel, and are not meant to be directly applied to the church today? For example, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, the worship liturgy of ancient Israel, the animal sacrifice system, etc., are obviously changed. The enduring moral precepts, however, have been repeated in the New Testament writings, that is, in Acts and in the Epistles, and are still in force, though they serve a somewhat different function. What about tithing? Is the tithe meant to be applied to post-Pentecost or New Covenant Gentile believers? Clearly, the tithe, the moral obligation to give one-tenth of one's income, was an important part of the Mosaic law given to Israel for very specific purposes. So the question is, does it apply to the church? Kokel's answer, I think not, for a couple of reasons. First, 
virtually all of the support for the idea of the New Testament Christian tithing comes from the Hebrew Scriptures in the context of the Old Covenant law, not the New Covenant. Tithing was for Jews uh, under Moses in a theocracy, not for Gentiles in the church. The Jerusalem Council that met that that met in Acts chapter 15 made it clear that the burden of the Mosaic law that was distinctly Jewish in nature should not be laid on the shoulders of the Gentile believers. Go and read Acts chapter 14 and 15. You'll you'll see what uh, is being referred to there. One rejoinder to my assessment is that the New Testament actually does teach the obligation of tithing. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says, quote, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. This seems to be a clear statement from Jesus that justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and tithing are all to be practiced by believers. This amounts to a direct command by Jesus to the church to tithe. A closer look shows this won't work, though. Jesus' remarks occur before Pentecost. He was simply reinforcing the teaching of the Mosaic Law already incumbent on the Jews in virtue of the fact that the Old Testament economy was still in force. I'm not just making this up. You'll notice that virtually all of Matthew 23 consists of the words of Jesus. He is giving a continuous discourse to the Jews, including his comments on tithing in verse 23. Look closely at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of the same discourse. In verse 2, Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, observe. Now, here's my question. When Jesus starts out a discourse giving the command that the listeners ought to do and observe everything that the scribes and the Pharisees tell them by the authority of the chair, that will be the office of Moses, is that command appropriate in a New Testament post-Pentecost context? The answer is clearly no. We are not obliged to obey everything that the scribes and the Pharisees told the Jews to obey regarding the law of Moses. We are in a new system. If verses 2 and 3 don't apply to the New Testament uh, Christian, then verse 23, which makes the uh, comment about tithing another part of the Mosaic law, seems to me to be suspect also. It's part of that larger discourse that is in an Old Testament context. My point is that simply because Jesus commands tithing in this verse is not enough to show that Christians ought to tithe in the church. One must give further New Testament justification and none is forthcoming. It doesn't mean that nothing in the discourse is useful in the New Testament sense. Certainly much of it is. But with with regard to commands, it's appropriate to ask whether these commands are necessarily part of the Old Testament context and don't apply to post-Pentecostal Christian context. Jews were to tithe and be just faithful and merciful. Christians are commanded in other contexts to be just, faithful, and merciful, but are not similarly commanded to tithe. The second reason I don't think tithing is a rule for the church is that when you look closely at the tithe of the Hebrews, it wasn't just 10%. It was closer to 30% because the tithe was given at different times of the year and for different purposes, sometimes for the priests, sometimes for the government. Actually, the priesthood and the machinery of the government were tightly interwoven. One could almost think of the uh, of the tithe as a civic tax 
to some degree. If the Old Testament law and tithing applies with equal force to Gentile Christians as to Old Testament Jews, then multiple tithes are required, not just the one-time 10%. Great argument, Greg. Um, um, Third, the new the new covenant teaching of Paul appears to replace the Old Testament tithe with a different directive. The new ethic explicitly states that we are not under obligation or under compulsion, but rather to give cheerfully as we purpose in our own hearts. See Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven. It says, "God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to prosper us, but we are to set aside what we determine in our own hearts to give." Now. I want to read that for you. If you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read this and uh, put it put it in, in context. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. It reads, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For each one must give as he has decided in his own heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So the idea here is is that Christians who are saved by grace through faith, who are not under the Mosaic law, who have been, their sins are forgiven uh, and are set free to do good works, that the tithe is not something that's morally put upon them the same way that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, not in that same way. Instead, Christians, because we are free in Christ, God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Okay, So the idea here is is that you can give 100% if you want. You can give 70%. Why limit yourself to 10? God loves a cheerful giver. So the Christian is to give not under compulsion, but to give what he's purposed in his heart to give, okay? We continue. Kokel writes, he says, Instead of a legal requirement to tithe, we are offered the opportunity to give. One can decide for himself whether he should give 5%, 10%, or 15%. It's up to him, according to whatever he has purposed in his own heart, as God has prospered him. To put it in a very straightforward way, there is no moral obligation in the New Testament to give 10% of one's income regardless of the circumstances. That was a provision given to Israel under the theocracy that is not repeated in the New Testament itself, but in fact is replaced by a new ethic that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 8. To whom should we give? Follow the guideline in Galatians 6.6. 6. It says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. We have a moral obligation to support financially those people or institutions that are feeding us spiritually. For most people, that would be the local church. For those who get their primary feeding from a parachurch organization through that group, 
uh, should be the main object of their given, giving. Keep in mind, even Christian organizations are part of the church in the New Testament sense. Generally, as a first order of priority, financial, uh, financially support for the work of the local church that's feeding you on a regular basis. However, there is full legitimacy to the helping of other organizations that are also feeding you. For instance, Stand to Reason, CRI, Focus on the Family, <clears throat> Pirate Christian Radio, or whatever. If you're getting fed there, that it then it's fair and good also consistent with Paul's teaching for you to support those organizations financially. There's a different category of giving that might be called a charitable offering, kicking in some cash to send someone to the mission field, etc., in this case, you're not giving back financially to those who've been giving to you spiritually, but rather you're offering help unilaterally. That's a separate category. Um, anyway, you get what I'm what uh, I'm reading here. Now, all of this that I've read, okay, and what I'm trying to do here is lay a foundation because now you know the you know when we look at as Christians, are we obligated to tie? The answer, no. No, we are set free to give as God has purposed in our hearts. This makes it so that when when somebody is in our congregation who is poor, who is needy, who is not capable of tithing, that we don't we don't look down our noses at them and judge them and say you better tithe and and then make it so that they their poverty gets worse. Instead, Rather than condemning them, we now see those people in our congregation as those who we need to help and we need to support. And we don't judge them and say, well, if you were just tithe, God would bless you and make it so that you would get out of poverty. Hogwash. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Your job is to help that person now, and you're set free to do so. You get it? Anyway, this is really important because what I've just said here. This is going to be flat out denied and preached against by, uh, well, Robert Morris um, from his sermon that we're going to be reviewing after the break. Um, you know, you know, and he preached it at New Spring at Perry Nobles Church. So anyway, that's foundation. Now let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll do our sermon review. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition... Or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Get ready for the Heresy Two-Step. The Bible-twisting sleight-of-hand trick. This guy is slick, that's all I can say. I'm blaming this sermon on Scott Kingsolver, just so you know. <laughs> he told me about number two. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via New Spring Church, where Pastor Perry Noble presides as the chief vision-casting innovative um, leader slash pastor. This is all part of his more sermon series, and uh, the name of the sermon is The Principle of First. That's right, the principle of first. This is a uh, another sermon preached by Robert Morris from Gateway Church. And uh, Gateway is in South Lake, Texas. And he's um, been asked to come into uh, New Spring to help help uh, whip them up into uh, into obedience on the tithing front. That's the only way I can speak even somewhat charitably of what's going on in this sermon. Now, as you're listening to this one, you've got to have your Bible open, and I'm going to help you with some of the hermeneutical problems that occur in this sermon. So 
Let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Robert Morris, Gateway Church, South Lake, Texas, preaching at New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina, uh, from the Moore Sermon Series, and, and this name of the sermon, The F- Principle of First. Here we go. Well, what is up, New Spring Church? I want to... This is Perry Noble introducing him. I want to welcome all of our campuses today, and I'm so glad. If it's been a great day so far at your campus, would you just say amen on three? One, two, three. Amen. Man, that's the loudest church been in a while, man. That's awesome. We are, seriously, we are so glad that you are here today. One really quick announcement, and then we're going to get right into the message. Um, if uh, Many of you know that Gauntlet filled up last week, and uh, man, we are so excited about the teenagers. Gauntlet is their uh, teenage uh, youth camp for the summer kind of thing. There's already a, a waiting list of like a couple hundred teenagers, and people have been asking, what can we do to get those teenagers to the Gauntlet? And you know what? It's not really a money issue. It's not really a room issue. Um, it's strictly a volunteer issue. It really is a volunteer tier issue. So here's what I'm saying. If you really want to see some of those kids go, maybe God's putting it on your heart to go with us, volunteer. Now, let me tell you a couple things about volunteer because it's not a week of vacation, okay? You, um, it costs you a hundred bucks to go. It, you, th- that's an investment from you. And you have to go through a background check and an interview. We don't, we don't, we're not looking for just warm bodies to stick on a bus to take to the beach, okay? We take our student ministry very seriously, And so if you think that God might be leading you to volunteer, let me tell you something. I promise you that if you go to the beach with these students, that the Lord will do something incredibly significant in your life. (laughs) Okay. I mean, you think you're going to go be a blessing and you will come back completely changed. You've never seen anything like it or experienced anything like it. So I'm asking some people today, the volunteer. Now, if you're interested in volunteering, this is all you got to do. When you leave church today, go home, get on your computer, www.newspring.cc. Right on our homepage, you will see, you know, big, if you want to volunteer for the gauntlet or what, there, it will be obvious. I don't care how computer illiterate you are or literate you are, you will, it will be obvious. You fill that out and someone will contact you as soon as possible. I'm telling you, it will blow you away, and I'm, I'm hoping that many of you will step up and volunteer because the more people that volunteer, the more students we can take because we love to keep about a one-to-three ratio of volunteers to students so we, we keep them safe, okay? So anyway, I just wanted to say that. Last week, we had the privilege of having Pastor Robert Morris with us. Did you not enjoy Pastor Robert Morris last week? See, not am- No, I didn't enjoy it at all. I, I almost had an aneurysm. Amazing... No, he, amazing. <laughs> I, that's not the word I would use, unless, of course, an amazing twister of God's word, um, a remarkable false teacher. Yeah. He has been an incredible investment. Well, guess what? He's back again today. New- <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, he's back. I mean, it should, we should get like, you know, sounds that go like this. Robert Morris, he's back. Yeah, that, that, I mean, those, that's the kind, oh man, we continue. New Spring Church, he's back again today, so I'm not going to go into introducing him because you know him. I just want you one more time to put your hands together and welcome my friend, Pastor Robert Morris to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. 
It is great to be back. I just have to tell you how much I love Pastor Perry, how much I love New Spring Church, and how impressed I am with the character, the kindness, the humility, the servanthood, the fire, the passion for God. Um, I just, I've just been blown away. So I'm glad to be back. So I want to get right in the Word. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 13. All right, Exodus chapter thirteen and last. Okay, now <clears throat> flip on over there. Let's go. Let, let's let's do some work ourselves before we let him twist this. Exodus chapter thirteen. Okay, have your Bible. Flip on over there. Now, here's one of the one of the very important hermeneutical rule, and that is is that when we have Scripture interpret Scripture, you in order for Scripture to teach a doctrine, it has to actually be talking about the subject. So here's the question that I have. I'm going to read to you um, a section from Exodus chapter 13. And here's the question that I have for you. Is this talking about tithing? Now, if this section were talking about tithing, it would say so. Okay. This is important. Let me read. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me, or set apart to me, all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, that is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service uh, in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No unleavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Okay, so, I mean, here we are. This is the Exodus story, and one of the things the Lord says to me is, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, what is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, the pe- both of man and of beast, that is mine. Um, is this talking about tithing? Answer, no. So, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, um, I, this is not talking about tithing. Last week, the title of the message last week was The Principle of Multiplication. This week, the title of the message is The Principle of First. The Principle of First. And I told you last week, I think that that message can change your life. I feel the same way about this message. Yeah, it could change your life, all right. It'd make you a lot poorer. And not only that, it runs the risk of turning you into a self-righteous, legalistic Pharisee. You know, God owes me something uh, because, anyway, you get what I'm saying. I really believe that when we understand, when we put God first in our life, everything else falls in place. And so that's what I want to talk to you about is putting God first in every area of your life. So Exodus chapter 13, uh, let's begin at verse 1, all right? Exodus 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it 
is mine. I want you to notice that phrase because it's just in the Bible a few times, and there are a few things that God says, this belongs to me. We know everything belongs to God, but there are some things that are set apart. God set apart or consecrated, and the firstborn is one. It is mine. And then look down at verse 12. Then you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. Verse 13, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. In other words, you're going to lose it. If you don't give it to God, you're going to lose it anyway. Okay, hang on a second here. I'm going to point something. Let's, let's read ahead a little bit now. Exodus 13, verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Notice that he he skipped verse 11. He went right down to verse 12, and he skipped verse 11. The reason why he skipped verse 11 is because if he had read verse 11, it would have been very clear that this isn't addressed to Christians. This is God speaking to the children of Israel, whom he's taking out of slavery out of the land of Egypt. So let me read it again in context. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And and when in time to come your son asks you why does what does what does this mean, you shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Now, this redemption, by the way, of um of the firstborn is the redemption price is given to us in the book of Numbers. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Numbers chapter 18, starting at verse 8. Watch, this is, this is how this redemption is supposed to take place according to the Mosaic Law. Numbers 18, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions that are made to me. All the consecrated things of the people of Israel, I have given them to you as a portion, to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place, shall you eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contribution of their gift. All the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best of the oil, all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, 
I give to you the first ripe fruits of all that is there in their land, which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat of it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all the flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras. But the firstborn of a cow or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But their flesh shall be yours as the breast that is waved and as the right thigh are yours. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and to your daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So here, well, in Exodus 13, it kind of first mentions this idea that every every firstborn animal that opens the womb belongs to the Lord. And then there in Numbers chapter 18, it explains how that redemption is supposed to take place of the firstborn. Got it? Anyway, let's continue. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, I know that what we just read is what I would call Old Testament theme. You know, it's a little, we're kind of like, eh, okay, what do donkeys and lambs and all that have to do with Christianity and believing in Jesus and being a Christ follower? Yeah, that is the, uh, well, the 10% question. <laughs> Could be the $24 million question. I don't know. It depends on how much you make. All right, well, I'm going to explain it to you. Oh, please do. I want to give you three points today, all right? Here's, oh, get on with it. Here's number one. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. Um, for the people of Israel, yeah. In the Mosaic Law, that's absolutely true. Uh, that's Old Covenant. That doesn't apply to New Covenant Christians post-Pentecost. Let me say it again. The firstborn must be, must be sacrificed or redeemed. Now, that's what we just read here. Now, here's what he's saying. Uh, you're a rancher, and you've got all these animals, and when you're uh, lamb... Has, when your sheep has a lamb, you are to sacrifice the first one to God. I want you to think about this. It doesn't take faith to sacrifice the tenth one. It takes faith to sacrifice the first one when all you have is one and the promise of more. Actually, no, it doesn't take any faith at all. Okay, People who do not have faith can obey this law. And that's one of the weaknesses of the Mosaic Law is that it, you know, that it doesn't require faith at all. So God says, you give me the first one and the rest are redeemed. The rest are blessed. But then he makes this statement. But Whoa, 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 man. I got to back this up because I want to show you what he just did. He pulled a fast one. 
Okay, watch what he just did. He read a passage, and now in the explanation, he's inserting something. He's engaging in eisegesis. He's saying something that the text doesn't say. Hey, listen again. Uh, lamb, has, when your sheep has a lamb, you are to sacrifice the first one to God. I want you to think about this. It doesn't take faith to sacrifice the tenth one. It takes faith to sacrifice the first one when all you have is one and the promise of more. So God says, you give me the first one and the rest are redeemed. The rest are blessed. Text doesn't say that. The text doesn't say that at all. Neither in Exodus 13 or Numbers 18, which explains how that redemption is to take place. Text doesn't say that. Text doesn't say you give me the firstborn and the rest are redeemed and blessed. It doesn't say that at all. This is this is, basically he just engaged in ice of Jesus. He pulled a fast one. This is the uh, the uh, heresy two step: reading a text and then getting off of it, and to make it look like that's what the text said. Text doesn't say anywhere. Show me in, num- in Exodus thirteen or Numbers eighteen where it says the rest are blessed. He just he just made that up. But then he makes the statement, but now if you have an unclean animal, that unclean animal is supposed to be redeemed by the sacrifice of a clean animal. Now, stay with me, okay? I know, again, let me use the word. This is Old Testament D. Okay, I understand that. But everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything, the first Corinthians 10. Now, this next point, I mean, okay, sure, he's going to point us to Jesus on this next point. I'll give him props for that, but this is, there's some crazy stuff going on here. And the fact that he just engaged in ice to Jesus has me throwing a red flag and blowing a whistle. 10 tells us that everything was written as an example to us. So what in the world would this be an example of? All right, think about this. If your animal was born clean, it had to be sacrificed. If it was unclean, it had to be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean. I'm going to say it one more time because I'm going to show you how this points to Jesus. If the firstborn was clean, a clean animal, it had to be sacrificed. If it was an unclean animal, it had to be redeemed with the sacrifice of a clean. All right? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Were you and I born clean or unclean. unclean? Unclean. The Bible says we were all born in sin. Matter of fact, I can prove it to you if you have children. Okay, now this is a valid point that points us to Jesus. I'm glad we got a little gospel nugget going on in here. In fact, I should play this sound, you know. Here comes the gospel, and there it goes. But that's pretty much about all you're going to hear of the gospel. Listen in. Did you have to teach your children to be bad? Or did it come naturally for them? (laughs) Comes natural, right? So we were all born unclean. Was Jesus born unclean or clean? Clean. Listen, the clean had to be sacrificed so the unclean could be redeemed. Okay, fine. Perfectly fine uh, use of the scripture to point us to Christ. Absolutely no problem with this. Good point. There it is, right there, Exodus 13. 
It's all about Jesus. But here's what he's saying. You sacrifice the first one to me and the rest are blessed. You understand when Jesus... Again, where in Exodus 13 is it saying the rest are blessed? I'm not seeing it. Not seeing it at all. Died on the cross, it brought the blessing on us. It removed the curse if we'll believe and accept Jesus as our Savior. So now he's talking, though, about this principle. And this principle applies to all, every part of our lives. And as we apply... Okay, now what he's done here is... Uh, see, this is some kind of a cosmic principle that Robert Morris has discovered. So what he's done here is he's eisegeted something into the text in a section that doesn't apply to post-Pentecost New Covenant Christians found the so-called principle of the matter in order to then, well, make us uh, bind our consciences, so to speak, to the principle that's being taught here. I did last week when we talked about finances, it's the same way. When I get paid, every time I get paid, if I'll give the first 10% to God, the rest is blessed. There, it, it remo- text doesn't say that moves the curse it brings it out from where does it say that our finances are cursed until we bring the tithe in there isn't a single passage of scripture that says that under the curse of the world system and you have to understand according to this remember he said if you don't do this then you have to break its neck in other words you're going to lose it here's what people don't understand what that's not what the text talks about as far as how to redeem the the animal that first opens the womb percent is going whether you give it or whether you lose it. Oh, man. Hang on. I'm going to back this up so you can hear what he just said without me interrupting him because I want you to hear it in context. This guy has completely left biblical teaching at this point. He's engaging in, well, eisegesis at best and making stuff up now about God and trying to bind Christian consciences with the so-called principle that he's discovered, but no one else has about this principle. And this principle applies to all, every part of our lives. And as we applied it last week, when we talked about finances, it's the same way. When I get paid, every time I get paid, if I'll give the first 10% to God, the rest is blessed. It it removes the curse. It brings it out from under the curse of the world system. And you have to understand, according to this, remember he said, if you don't do this, then you have to break its neck. In other words, you're going to lose it. Now notice, he's taken this text... And now he's applying it to finances. There is no hermeneutical justification for what he's doing at all. None whatsoever. And no biblical text says that your income is cursed by the world system until you redeem the first 10%. This is flat-out fiction. This is heresy. This is heresy. Here's what people don't understand. 10% is going whether you give it or whether you lose it. You, you can choose. You can lose it and remain under the curse, or you can give it and remain under the blessing. And it is amazing to me how people argue about tithing. This is flat-out manipulation. Flat-out, flat-out lying and manipulation. The Bible is so clear that if you, if you tithe, give the first 10%, you're blessed. If you don't, you're cursed. Okay, let me think about this. Blessed, cursed. You know, I feel like saying, I'm not a smart man, but I think I like to be blessed. You know, it's... So we're working off a cosmic quid pro quo. It doesn't take any faith at all. 
This is a quid pro quo, which is the exact opposite of what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is compulsion. If well, if I don't do it, then I'm going to be then then my my money is under the curse of the world system. What verse said that again? Not one single verse said that. If any of the passages that he's referring to said anything of the sort, in fact, there is no biblical verse that says that. He's basically saying you are under compulsion. You've got to do this, otherwise your money is cursed. Your money is under a curse until you redeem it by giving God the first 10%. But Exodus chapter 13 isn't talking to you about the money that you make at your job. It's not that hard. Any first thing given is never lost. Any first thing. But that this text doesn't say that. It's not any first thing. This is a specific first thing. Any first thing not given is always lost. It's all through Scripture. It doesn't say that. Scripture. Are we going to put God first or not? Do you realize every time you get paid, you take a test? Oh, man. The test is whom are you going to honor for your paycheck? This is all law. And the first part that leaves is whom you honor. The first part, the first portion, and the first portion is the redemptive portion. The first portion has... So, no, it doesn't say this. This text does not say the first portion of your income is a redemptive portion that releases the rest of your money under the cur- that's under the curse. This text doesn't say that at all. You are lying, Robert. It's a blessing on it that if you give it to God, you're, you're able to redeem the rest of your finances. All right, so that's number one. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. Here's number two. The first fruits must be offered. The first fruits must be offered. Now, just stay right there in Exodus 13. I'll come back to that at the end of the message. Let me read you a few other scriptures. Exodus 23, verse 19. Exodus 23, 19 says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Notice, by the way, we talked about this a little last. Okay, who was this written to? <clears throat> Exodus twenty three nineteen. who was it written to? Children of Israel, who were brought out of slavery and going into the promised land. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Where is the house of the Lord your God? What house is this referring to? Answer, the tabernacle which then became the temple. It's not talking about the local synagogue. He said, he didn't say you shall give them. He said you shall bring them. And where did he say to bring them? Into the house of the Lord. The tithe goes to the church. It doesn't go. You know. No, you are, you are engaging in hermeneutical. Uh, well, this, this is a hermeneutical felony. That's what this is. In fact, you know, in fact, it's all law. So I, I yeah, I, I'm sorry, Robert. I'm going to have to bring you in for hermeneutical felony. Good night. You don't divide your time. Unbelievable. I, this is just, this is an abomination. 
God. Notice, by the way, we talked about this a little last week. He said, he didn't say you shall give them. He said you shall bring them. And where did he say to bring them? Into the house of the Lord. The tithe. This is not synonymous with the church. It's the tabernacle, and this is the children of Israel bringing it to the tabernacle. The first fruits, according to Numbers 18, were then given to the Levitical priesthood as their due for their services to the Lord because they didn't receive a physical land inheritance in the new in, in, in the promised land it goes to the church it doesn't go you don't divide your tithe doesn't go to the university doesn't go to the christian school doesn't go to a television ministry listen to me very carefully you bring it into the house of the lord you can't give it because it doesn't belong to you and you can't designate it you can't say i want five percent oh man you can't designate it either this sounds like somebody who uh, wants to make sure that he has free reign to do with his finances as he ha- as he can and doesn't like those designated funds. Yeah, those 501c3s with those designated funds, those can get rather thorny because then it takes the decision-making power out of the hands of the pastor. To go here and 5% here. The reason you can't designate the tithe is because it doesn't belong to you. You can't, you don't. This text doesn't say that don't give the tithe you bring the tithe into the house of the lord and so many people say well i I tithe or i give somewhere around there and and but there's no blessing because they're taking what is god's and saying this is what i want done with it as if it's yours it's not yours it is the lord's it belongs to the lord it is mine god says and then proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 honor the lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The firstborn belongs to God and the first fruits belong to God. Um, if you remember when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land, God said, bring me all the silver and gold from Jericho. And he said a very specific place into the house of the Lord. He said, it's consecrated. That's kind of a big word that means set aside or set apart. It is set apart for the house of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Why did he say, bring me all, all of the silver and gold from Jericho? Very simple. You want to know why? It was the first city. He didn't say, conquer 10 cities and then give me one because that wouldn't take faith. He said, give me. This doesn't take faith. All, in fact, somebody who has zero faith can do this give me the first one and i'll bless the rest and by the way when they held part of the first bat they lost the very next battle until they brought it to the house of the lord so it's all through scripture because it's not even the principle of 10 percent that brings the blessing on us it's the principle of faith it's the principle of which 10 percent do we give it's the principle of do we say to God, I've got a stack of bills here, but I'm going to honor you first, and I'm going to honor the house of God first. And when we honor God and God's house first, then he takes care of this over here. That's why God said with Abraham, give me Isaac. Isaac was his firstborn. And he only had one and the promise of more. He didn't say have ten sons and then give me one. He said you give me the first one and I'll bless the rest. And it's all through Scripture. Now he's just, he's taken his eisegetical work and spun it into a, a whole new law that we've all, we're all bound to and God's bound to. If, if, you, if you give God the first, you know, the 10% of, uh, your, of your money, he has to bless you. It's a cosmic 
quid pro quo. You put God into your debt. And you don't have to have any faith to do this. All you need is money. And when I was in Bible college, um, I remember one day, I, I don't know, I'll just never forget this. And I'll never forget it probably because of the, the higher education now that I'm involved in. I'm the chairman of the board of a university. Uh, so I have a lot of interaction with uh, helping students grow in their relationship with God and learn theology and things. But uh, I, was in a, I was in Bible college, and uh, this student asked the question, uh, professor a question. And um, he, uh, he gave an answer I had, had never heard a professor say. So if you've been to college, you'll, you'll probably understand why I say this. He said, why did God accept Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's? And the professor gave an answer, never heard a professor before then give, never heard a professor after give. Here's what he said. I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever heard a professor give that answer? Most time they'll talk for about five minutes, even if they don't know. But anyway, uh, I'm really pleased with that guy that did that. But the reason that God did accept Abel's offering and he didn't accept Cain's is actually what he was saying was, I don't have a revelation on that. And I think that's a good thing to say when we don't have revelation. But when you understand the firstborn and first fruits, it's simple. It's very easy to understand why God accepted Abel's and didn't accept Cain's. Let me read it to you and see if you see it. Oh, boy. I hardly wait to see this. Genesis 4, verses 3, 3, 5. And in the process of time, now those are very important words, just whenever it became convenient, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Notice it doesn't say first fruit offering. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. You see it? Pretty simple, isn't it? When you understand firstborn and first fruits, you know, uh, Abel is a rancher. And he's got, he gives, so he gives the firstborn. Cain is a farmer, but he doesn't give first fruits. He just gives an offering in the process of time whenever he felt like it and however much he felt. How many people give like that? I'll just give whenever I feel led to give and however much I feel led to give. Listen to me very carefully. God will not accept it. Wow, God's not going to accept it. By the way, that's quite a stretch there because here's the deal. It's clear from the text that Abel had faith. Jesus himself says of Abel that he's righteous. Was it because he wasn't a sinner or because he kept the law perfectly? No, because he had faith in the coming Messiah. Cain did not have faith at all. So if we're to take your interpretation seriously, we have to come to the conclusion that uh, Abel was uh, righteous because of his obedience rather than his faith. And that does violence to this passage. As a matter of fact, God cannot, cannot accept an offering that's not first. So don't be sending God 10% of your money if it ain't the first 10% because he cannot accept it. Wow. This is very important to understand. I, I have a huge, huge burden that we have a, a whole generation that are on fire for God, but if we don't teach theology, we're in trouble. We've got to teach. Yeah, I agree, and you're not teaching it. 
correct theology. And one of the best things you can do if you want to just get a good foundation is study the attributes of God. Because the attributes of God are not things God does, they are things God is. It's very important. God, God, see we say God loves. Let me tell you why God loves. Because God is love. He is love. Uh, God is gracious. Let me tell you why he's gracious. Because he is grace. Okay, so let me just say there are some things, people don't understand this about theology, there are some things that God can't do. He can't. All right, for one, for instance, God can't change. This is called the immutability of God. God can't change. He can't change. He, yeah. He can't change. You know why he can't change? Because if he could change, he could get better. And God can't get better because he's best. God's perfect. God, yeah. God can't change because if he could change, he could get better. He can't change because he's perfect. So God can't change. He can't change. He can't change. Let me tell you something else God can't do. Now, this, this one will shock you. God can't think the way we think. God can't think the way we think. This is the omniscience of God because God knows everything. Let me just hopefully blow your minds for a minute. God knows everything at the same time. You know why God can't think the way we think? Because we think to figure things out. God's already got it all figured out. Listen, let me say it another way. Nothing has ever occurred to God. God has never said, you know, just... Notice he's using the truth to camouflage and mask his lies. It's occurred to me. I just had a thought I've never had before. God's never done that because of his omniscience. He knows everything at the same time. Are you following me? And and when I said a moment ago, God can't think the way we think, and I kind of paused there, I'm sure you thought of a scripture and thought, oh, wait, 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 I know a scripture about the thoughts of God. That scripture actually proves this theological point. Here's what God said. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you. As the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are above your thoughts. He doesn't think the way. So God can't think the way we think. And one other thing I want to tell you God can't do. God can't accept second place. He can't. That's his preeminence. The preeminence of God is that he's above all, higher than all, before all, and first of all. God will never be second. He'll never be second. I'm telling you, God doesn't accept second place offerings. So, I mean, if you don't give him the first 10%, God ain't going to accept it, and your money is still under the curse of the world system. It doesn't matter if there isn't a passage that says anything of the sort. Robert Morris has divined all this himself using his own theological principles, namely eisegesis. He only accepts first, and he can't. He could not accept Cain's offering because it wasn't first fruit. He couldn't do it. He just can't do it. Let me give you an illustration. If if God plays 18 holes of golf, his score will be 18. Because I'm telling you, if God hits the ball, it's going in the hole. It's not going to be close because he's perfect. You understand what I'm saying? So the firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. Must be. The first fruits must be offered. And here's number three. The tithe must be first. Must be first. For God to accept it, it's... Must be. Must be. Must, this is all pure rank legalism. Got to be first. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, And all the tithe of the land, all the tithe of the land, 
whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's or belongs to the Lord. It is holy, set apart to the Lord. The firstborn belongs to God. The first fruits belong to God. The tithe belongs to God and must be first. Okay, um, give you an illustration. Let's say that you own a uh, landscape company. And uh, I say, hey, I'd like for you to come and put some shrubs and plants and grass and things in at my house. And uh, so, I, and how much will it be? And so you say, well, this is the way I'd like to do it. Um, uh, this is my, all of my expenses. This is what all, everything will cost me. This will be all my labor to install it. And then my profit will be $1,000. And is that agreeable? I say, yes, that's agreeable. So I pay all your expenses, all, all this, and then your profit, which would be your increase or your income, $1,000. So then I give you, after paying all of that, I give you 10 $100 bills, all right? So you have $1,000, you have 10 $100 bills in your hand. Okay, I want to ask you two questions. First question, how much is the tithe? $100, okay, I know that was math, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, we will not dwell long on math, okay? But if there are 10 $100 bills <clears throat> and, uh, you, you, uh, and you got 10 of them, okay, and uh, the tithe is one, is everyone with me now? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry I'm using math in a sermon, in a message. I'm sorry, okay. But all right, if 10 $100 bills, you can answer me, how much is the tithe? $100, right? You got 1000 the tithe would be $100, all right? You got 10 of them now. Which one's the tithe? First one. Yeah, you're saying that because you're listening to this message. But, okay. How do you know which one's the first one? Let me tell you how you know. It's the first one to leave your hand. Once you've got $1,000 in your hand, the first 10%, the first $100 bill leaves your hand, that's the one that has the blessing on it. And if you give it to somebody else and then turn around and give God the second 10%, God won't take it. That's the one that's the redemptive portion. Now listen to me very, very carefully. Don't. Oh, we've been listening to you really carefully checking what you've been saying against the god's word and found that it's you ain't teaching god's word correctly at all sir don't say okay let me set aside some for the mortgage and set aside some of the card and set aside for the groceries and here's god's because you gave the first one the redemptive one to the mortgage company which means the rest of your money is cursed according to him not according to god's word but according to him listen to me very carefully don't give the redemptive portion to the mortgage company because the mortgage company does not have the power to bless your finances. And we should, we should know that after the last couple of years, <laughs> what, what's happened to mortgage companies. <laughs> Don't do that. The first one is the redemptive portion. Take the first. Listen, the first. By the way, these passages don't teach this at all. He's taken something out of the Mosaic law that applied to the people of Israel, specifically regarding animals that open the womb and first fruit offerings and have, has turned it into something that has to do with your finances. And it's not even part of the new covenant at all. The Bible doesn't teach this. The first 10%, the first check that leaves my account every time I get paid is the tithe. Every time. I get paid on the 15th and the 30th. And I go in on the 15th and the 30th and having my quiet time, and I do it online now, and I send immediately the first one. Or if I'm writing a check, the first check that leaves my account. Listen, it goes to the church. That's the one with redemptive portion. I, I, I'll, I'll make a statement. 
I can tell you who's first in your life if you let me see your check register. And you can look at my check register and you'll see deposit, tithe, deposit, tithe. Then all the bills, deposit, tithe, bill. Actually, um, this doesn't prove that God is first. It proves that you're first. Because you believe that you have to redeem the rest of your money so that you can be blessed. So in reality, even though you're saying that you can prove that God is first in your life, actually what you've proven is that you're first because you supposedly believe that you, by doing this, you put God into your debt and he has to bless you, has to bless the rest of your money. It actually proves that you're first in your life. Deposit tithe. First, the first thing that leaves my account every time money comes in is the tithe because that's the redemptive portion. Now, let me just say this. I'm not legalistic about it, and God is not. Really, this is just doublespeak at this point. No, sir, you are very legalistic. Remember, God can't bless the second best or the second tenth. He, ha- he will only bless the first. You said that. You said your money is under a curse and it has to be redeemed and it can only be redeemed by the first 10%, even though the Bible doesn't say that at all anywhere. Not legalistic. Did you know that? I know so many people think God's legalistic. People don't understand. You, you don't, there are two reasons God gave the law. You know that, don't you? There's two reasons God gave the law. Number one, to show the moral absolutes of God. I thought you said you were a theologian. There's three uses of the law. First use is the use used by the government, the use that keeps us from beating up on each other and stealing each other's stuff. That's the first use of the law. It's a curb against evil and sin in the world. Second use of the law, the primary use, the the use given to us and explained in Romans chapter 3. By the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans chapter 3. And then the third use of the law shows us what a good work is. Hmm. It shows the moral uh, perfection of God, his moral standards, the moral absolutes. In other words, if you want to know, uh, is God, let me just ask you, is God for or against adultery? Against it. How do you know that? Because the law says, don't commit adultery. And, and by the way, he doesn't say that because he's approved. He says that because adultery hurts people and he loves people. That's the only reason he says it. Is God for or against stealing? He's against it. How do you know? Because the law told us that. And he's not against stealing because he's approved. He's against stealing because stealing hurts people. Is he for or against lying? He's against lying. Why? Because lying hurts people. Okay. So that's how we know the moral absolutes of God. That's the number one reason God gave the law. Number two reason God gave the law, which most people don't know, is to frustrate us to bring us to Christ. That's what Galatians says. That's, that's what Romans says. Romans says, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known the moral absolutes of God one for the law, but the law frustrated me. And so because of that, I had to come to Christ because I couldn't do the law. See, God said when he gave the law, here's what he said. I want all the people to come up the mountain. I want them to be a kingdom of priests to me. This is Old Testament, way before Peter said a kingdom of priests. I want them to be a kingdom of priests to me. And the people came near. They saw the mountain, the lightning, the lightning, the smoke, the thunder. And they said, oh, no, you go up. You, you go up the mountain and talk to God. We don't want to talk to God. Here's what they said, by the way, lest we die. Can I tell you something? Flesh always dies in the presence of God. Self always dies in the presence of God. Moses was willing to die in the presence of God. The people were not willing. That's why Moses knew his ways and the children of Israel knew his acts. 
he, he gives lip service to grace and faith. He doesn't even know it at all. All he knows, all Robert Morris knows is law. And not only that, he doesn't even know the Mosaic law correctly. And he's trying to apply stuff from the Old Testament to the New Testament without any warrant or sound hermeneutic to do so. So they said, no, no, you go up and you, you come back and tell us what God says. By the way, that's exactly what people do know. No, no, Pastor Perry, you go, you go up the mountain and then you come back and tell us what God says. And what Pastor's been telling you for years now is, no, no, I'd like for you to go up the mountain too. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so, so he said, come on, I want everybody to come up. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to come. Here's what God said. You don't want relationship? Okay, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That is not why God gave the law. You just lied again. Until finally, finally, we come to the place where we say, I can't do this. And God says, that's great. My son already did it for you. He already did it for you. If you don't think God gave the law to frustrate us, read Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. There's a whole chapter on what you have to do if you get a scab. And I can just see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, now here's my question. Why doesn't he try to take those sections that talk about what to do when you have a skin disease or a bodily discharge? Why isn't he applying those passages? Or how about the dietary laws regarding eating pig flesh and stuff like that? Hmm? First thing, hey, hey, let's... Do you, do you think he eats bacon and lobster? You know, just ask him. Say if they do that, they have to wait seven days. No, no, say 10 days. No, say 14, say 14. They'll never do that. <laughs> because they want relationship. God wants relationship with you. You follow me? Okay, so I, I, here's what I'm saying. I'm not legalistic about tithing. You got to understand this. It is not. That is a flat out lie. This whole sermon is nothing but legalistic self-righteousness, and it's not even a clear teaching of the Word of God. It's a tortured, twisted, malarkey-filled so-called reading from, from the Bible. He's teaching stuff that isn't really there. He's misapplying the text, and he's doing it in a legalistic fashion. How can you say with a straight face, I, I'm not legalistic, but God's going to curse your, all of your money's under a curse, and the first 10% is the redemptive portion, and if you give God the second 10%, your money's still under a curse, and you can't get the blessing because God won't put up with it. That is flat-out legalism. You cannot, with a straight face, turn around and say that you're not being a legalist. That is a lie. Law, it's life to me. It is life to me. It's, it's the greatest part of my life is to be able to honor God first. I love honoring God first with my life. I love honoring God first with my finances. So I'm not legalistic. In other words, if I get the checkbook uh, and uh, on the day I get paid and I notice that Debbie went to the grocery store, I don't say, oh, that's great, honey. We're cursed now. You should because... I mean, where, in, where, first, where in the Bible does it say if it's okay if your wife accidentally spends the first 10% on groceries? Hmm? I mean, when I read the Mosaic Law, there is no slack cut to people at all. God, when he told the children of Israel regarding the manna that he was going to give them to eat in the desert, basically said, here's the deal. You gather enough for one day and no more and then on friday you gather enough for two days so that you have enough for friday and for saturday on the sabbath and god was angry at the people who disobeyed even that 
who went out and on, you know, it wasn't Friday and they gathered two days worth of stuff or they gathered more than they needed. And there was worms and maggots in, in the, uh, in the leftover manna and God was furious at it. And then on Saturday, people went out to go gather manna and it's a Sabbath and they're not supposed to do it. God was again mad at that. Then you think about the sons of Aaron who, who offered unauthorized fire to God and God killed them. So here you're sitting and saying, oh, well, I'm not legalistic about this, so it doesn't really matter if my wife spends the first 10% on groceries because, <laughs> you know, I'm not legalistic about it. Um, no, actually, this whole thing has been nothing but a legalistic sermon. So show me where it's okay for your wife to accidentally spend the redemptive portion on groceries, sir. You gave the tithe to Kroger's and, we're, you know, we're cursed. Yeah, you would be if this was... If we're supposed to, this is all law teaching, yeah, you'd be cursed. No, I'm not legalistic about it. And listen to me, God's not legalistic either. Because there are many of you, many of you who tithe, and you say, yeah, but I haven't been doing it first. Are you saying God didn't accept it? No, no, no. To him who knows to do right and does not it is sin. Listen, you were. So you didn't know. Oh, because You didn't know that you were doing it wrong then. This here's some comforting words. Listen, you were, you were operating in the light that you had. You're, you're giving ten percent. You say, well, "I didn't know to give it first. That's okay. God accepted it." But now you know. But now you know. And you're not legalistic. <laughs> now, Maniacal laugh. Now you know that you put it first. That you give it first. And it's all through Scripture that the firstborn, first fruits, first principles. Everything in Scripture, everything we do, belongs to God first. Um, let me read you a Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders, not suggestions, by the way, orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. I just I want to stop in a moment, and I want you to fill in the word, all right? Verse 2. On the what day of the week? First day of the week. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Okay, um, let me help you out here. Um, Christians, what day of the week did first century Christians gather for worship? Was it the first day of the week, the second day of the week, the third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, or the seventh? By the way, the Jewish way of keeping track of the days, Sunday was the first day of the week. Saturday, the Sabbath, was the seventh day of the week. What day of the week did Christians gather for worship? Answer, the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Did Jesus rise on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, or did he rise from the grave on the first day of the week, which was Sunday? Answer, it was Sunday. This passage, 1 Corinthians 16, isn't teaching anything about first principles. It just says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up that he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, this was basically talking about taking a collection on Sunday, the day that Christians gathered for worship, the first day of the week. Okay, here's what he's saying. Um, 
I want you to put God first. And this says storing up as he may prosper. One version says in direct proportion to the amount you earn. Now, I don't know why God chose uh, 10%. But I think I know why he chose a percentage. None of these passages talk about tithing. And that is so everybody could do it. Doesn't matter if you make 30000 a year or 300000 a year. It's the same. It's a penny on every dime. That's all God's asking for. He's saying on every dime you get, would you just give me the first penny? And I'll bless the other nine. Did you know that 90% with God's blessing goes farther than 100% without? So everybody knew it. By the way, this is why some people that make less actually give more than wealthy people because it's on a percentage basis with God. There's some, this is why the widow gave more than all the wealthy people. Jesus said she, this woman gave more to everybody else. She only gave two mites, which was actually one cent. The, the mites were a, a, a Jew, the a Jewish penny, and two of those made up the Roman penny. So that she gave one penny as she, because she gave two half cents is what she gave. So it's just amazing. Um, go to, back to Exodus 13. Let's pick up where we left off. Again, Exodus 13 says nothing, nothing, nothing about tithing. He is totally mangling God's word and misapplying it. This is total money manipulation. And, um, and, and then I'm finished, all right? Exodus 13, verse 14. So it shall be, now remember, this is talking about sacrificing the firstborn. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? In other words, why are you killing this animal? That you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Okay, here's what he said. He said, uh, now listen, there's going to come a day that your son is going to get older and he's going to ask you why you kill these animals. And I want to give you the answer for it. I want you to think about this. The little boy runs in the house, dad, dad, dad. Uh, the sheep's having a lamb. Oh, great. So uh, family runs out to the barn, you know. Oh, miracle of new life. Yay. And the dad grabs the lamb, goes over, cuts the neck, kills it. That's not how you're supposed to do this. Read Numbers 18. At a month old, they get redeemed at the tabernacle or the temple. And the son watches this. Of course, you know what he's thinking. Don't, don't mess with dad. <laughs> so, okay. That, that, that. Apparently, that lamb did something wrong, but um, I'm not doing anything wrong. Okay, so then he said, one day your son's going to get older, and he's going to notice every time, firstborn, you just kill it, every time. So one day, son, you know, he's a little older, and he's going to say, Dad, um, we need to talk. Um, you, you, you developed, um, well, you, you have a bad habit, and um, um, you might not even know you do this, Dad, you know, uh, but... Um, we're, uh, we're in the ranching business. Uh, you know, we, we, we're, uh, we're, uh, uh, and every time a, a sheep has a, a lamb, that's first one again, dad, you might not even be aware that you're doing this. Uh, but, um, you kill it and, um, it's cutting into our profits, dad. And, um, 
So I just want to make you aware because you might not even know you do this. He said, now, when that happens, you take your son and you put him on your lap and you say to him, son, um, dad needs to tell you something that you don't know. We weren't always in the ranching business. As a matter of fact, we used to be slaves. We didn't have any sheep. We didn't have any land. We had nothing. But God, with a mighty hand, delivered us. Therefore, we gladly give to God. Okay, uh, notice this is this was Exodus 13 is told to the children of Israel who are coming out of 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. I mean, he's telling this story as if what we need to be able to do now is explain this to our children as if we're the Israelites. Unbelievable. This man is putting us back under the law. Firstborn. Now, Here's this way back in Exodus. I've had this happen with all three of my kids. And I remember the first one. Really? Serious? The most. I was in my office. I was paying the bills. And I was writing checks. I'd written the tithe check, settled over the side, and then I was writing the bills. I wrote it first and settled over. By the way, for you younger people, we used to have these pieces of paper. Um... Called check. All right, easy anyway. So, so I'm. I, this is back when you used check. So I'm writing the check, put the tie check over, and now I'm paying the bills. Okay, I've given that to God first, and on Sunday I'm gonna take it to church. But I've already done that first. I'm doing this. My son came in. He's old enough now to kind of know numbers and all, and he looked at the tie check. Now a tie check to a kid looks like a gazillion dollars, you know, because they give like a quarter, you know. And so he he looked at that and he said, Dad. Why do you give so much money to the church? And I remember this scripture. And I put him in my lap and I said to him, son, I need to tell you something about daddy that you don't know. You were once a slave in Egypt? Your daddy wasn't always a Christian. As a matter of fact, your daddy was a very, very bad person. But God, with a mighty hand, delivered your daddy. Therefore, I gladly give to God the first fruits of all of our income. It's not law for me. It's life. But if you don't do it, your finances are cursed. And that's death. I've never gotten over getting saved. I hope you never get over it either. I promise you, I promise you, you'll put God first in this area of your life. Everything changes. Everything. 
how come uh, it, it, you know it won't change if I uh, give up eating unclean animals and just go with uh, you know eating clean ve- uh, animals and and fresh fruits and vegetables? Will God bless me then? How, how come that? How come that doesn't apply? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you just, I just want to ask you, like I did last weekend, what's God saying to you? He's saying to me that you are a complete Bible twister and a money grubber, and that this hermeneutic cannot be supported using sound hermeneutical principles. You are an eisegete and a money manipulator. Just take a moment. Just, it's very important. We come to you, sappy music, all the easier to emotionally manipulate people with the church and we worship and we hear God's word but so many times we don't respond let's just respond just in your heart right now what's God saying to you and I really really want to encourage you please 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 the Bible says test me it's the only area you can test God it's the only area the Bible says you can test him and that's in tithing test me bring the tithe bring don't give bring the tithe into my house the local church, the first 10%, the first fruits, bring the tithe and see if I will not. Just watch and see if I will not open the windows of heaven, pour out such a blessing on you, there will not even be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. I, I'm telling you, people go through divorces because they don't tithe. You see, you might, your, your whole marriage can collapse and you might go through a divorce if you don't tithe because your money's still under the curse. And, well, if your wife is spending cursed money, well, she might leave you. People get sick because they don't tithe. People- That's right. You could die. I mean, you might get cancer and die if you don't, if you don't tithe. People lose jobs because they don't tithe. Oh, your, your job is at stake. If you don't tithe, you're probably going to get you're going to get a pink slip tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying if you've gone through something, it's because of that, because we... Oh, no, no, you, you don't want to make, make it sound absolutely certain. But, I mean, the chances are it's probably true, though. We all go through difficulties in this life. But I am saying that there is a protection and there is a blessing. Uh, protection. So God's in a protection racket. I mean, isn't this the exact same ta- tactics that the mafia uses? You know, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that you're going to end up swimming with the fishes in the river, you know, with a with a big piece of cement, you know, uh, you know, around your, your your feet. I'm not saying that that's going to happen to you, but I am saying, you know, but bad things happen to people that do not be giving us money. You know what I'm saying? You know, so um, I, I just don't want anything bad to happen to you. You you so you you get what I'm saying? Okay. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, no, a little bit more, a little bit more. Ah, oh, yeah. There you go. See, you're safe now. I'm not saying that you're going to have a bullet in your head. No, 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 no. That that, that that's so negative. So that's not the way to think. But I'm just saying that you are safer if you um if you uh, you know grease my palms with just a little bit of money. You know. And there is an order that comes in our life when we put God first. So I'm, I really want to encourage you, start today. Even if, if we, you've already given in the offering, maybe just write a check and give it to a staff person before you leave. Or, or Yeah, quick, give some more before you lose your job, your marriage goes kaput, you know, or, or you get cancer and die, you know. Or one of the, someone that's in charge of that, 
But start today. Give the first fruits to God. Quick before it's too late. But not, I just want to encourage you, just don't put God first in your finances. What about first in your life? Everything you do. Some of you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I'm putting you first today. I'm not putting you second or third or adding you. I'm going to put you first today. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to turn the service back over to Pastor Perry. And I just, I hear he's going to help you. If you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ, please don't put it off. Do it today. Lord, I pray that all of us, all of us right now, We'll put you first, first in our life, first in our heart, first in our family, first in our finances. In Jesus' name. There you go. Total money manipulation, major Bible twisting, misuse of God's law, eisegesis of the supreme sort, unbelievable. And this is what passes as biblical teaching. I this is a crime. This is an absolute hermeneutical felony that you've heard committed on the people at New Spring. <sighs> Sad. And and yeah, you, you heard a little gospel nugget in there, but that was just the you know, that was the bait on the hook. Because the real thing he's after is your money. Yeah, Robert Morris, this guy ain't a Bible teacher. He's a charlatan. He is a charlatan, a huckster of the highest order. Probably a graduate from the King and the Duke Seminary, guaranteed to uh, well, and he might even actually be related to uh, you know the you know the, the the mafia of some kind. He's running some kind of a protection racket. You know, you give God just the right amount of money, and God will make sure that you don't get cancer or your marriage stays intact, or you know you don't lose your job. Unbelievable. So what'd you think? I, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week, and I'll, I'll be in on Tuesday. Monday, I'm taking the day off. Uh, next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.